That's the uh, Ukraine Nationals national anthem there. A little taste of that. Uh, it's been six months. You know, you heard on Mike Smith show a bit about this. Uh, six months today since the Russia since Russia invaded Ukraine. Nobody thought Ukraine actually had a chance. Yet six months on, it's a totally different story. Today at five p.m., there's going to be a rally for Ukraine Independence Day. Uh, it's being held at City Hall in Vancouver. And joining me now is the organizer Olha uh, Prodan, founder of the Ukrainian Canadian Advocacy Group. Hello. Hi guys. Thanks Hello. For, hey, thanks for joining me. Look, what's going on? What's the plan tonight? Tell me a bit about that first. So, plan tonight at 5 p.m. We are organizing a rally uh, for, to Independence Day of Ukraine. And we would love to show today what is life like under occupation. We prepared posters with information and we want to share this with people. How is life like under Russian occupation? Well, and is, you're going to have personal experience. Tell me a bit about what life is like from your perspective and some of the people that might be speaking and, and being there. Um, I think I have uh, every right to tell about this because mm-hmm. I recently came back from Ukraine. All my family in Ukraine, my mother, my father, my sisters. And that's why it's hard. And as President Biden said, it's a little bit bittersweet feeling today. Yeah. It's six months how we hold our independence bravely, our freedom. But at the same time, it's six months how great people, brave people, intelligent people, young Ukrainians are dying every day. But we know why we are doing this. And we, ha- we know that it's, it's extreme. We have no choice. Only victory. It is amazing, and I think the 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 fact that the six months has gone by and we are seeing what's happening in Ukraine, and I don't think anybody expected it. How do you are you a bit surprised that you were able to do to do this, your country? You will be surprised, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> right. So I remember exactly 5 a.m. It was evening here in Vancouver. And my neighbor told me that in Kharkiv, start like shelling bombs. Mm-hmm. I was, I called to my family. I woke them up at 5 a.m. and say, yo, guys, wake up. Russia starts attacking Ukraine. But I will tell, now I'm telling you this, and I have uh, goosebumps. I'm not lying. Yeah, yeah. So, I want to say that from day, from first hour, it was extremely hard, 72 hours at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But after, I, I had no doubt that we will stand. You have no idea how Ukrainians are cool and brave. That's why I was sure that we will go till this point. You, do you have your family still there? Yes, my, all my family still all there. And, yes. and so what, when was the last time you spoke with them? Every morning, like morning starts for me, I'm checking how they are doing, what's going on in Ukraine. So it's my my small routine right now, Hmm. every morning during this last six months. And what are they saying? What do they say today, given the day that it's this big day today? You know, uh, I'm from western part of Ukraine. And for me, uh, our flag, Ukraine, extremely important. Mm -hmm. And for my family, we have long history under Russian occupation. My mm-hmm. grandfather, he was uh, sent to Siberian for 13 years for just Ukrainian language. So for my family, it's a celebration. But as I told, and President Biden as well, it's a little bit bittersweet because lots of Ukrainians are dying. Mm-hmm. And today, like for us, it's so, we're so proud. I will not lie. We are so proud mm-hmm. today. 
I bet. So the what about you're, you're from the west? So when you do you speak to people on the east side of uh, Ukraine, and they're obviously more challenged over there. Yeah, it's much more challenged. And for now, uh, two of my friends, their families under occupation in Kherson. Mm-hmm. And they are really waiting day to day, uh, waiting for Ukrainian uh, armed forces. Uh, I- I'm inspired by them because they keep going their resistance there. Despite all the horrible things what Russian soldiers do, they're still waiting, doing, acting. So it's amazing. How hopeful are you that, that the, those friends on the east, eastern side of Ukraine will be, they'll see their freedom again? We hope for this autumn, to be honest. I'm talking about uh, Kherson right mm-hmm. now, Kherson region. It's uh, south of Ukraine. Uh, right. We really hi- have high hopes that they will be free this autumn. Okay. Let's, let's hope so. Look, for tonight, so for people who want to come and attend and support, uh, 5 o'clock at, the, at City Hall, what time should they, should they be there a bit early? And, and how many people do you think can uh, to fit in the space you're going to be at? We have under- to understand that it's Wednesday, people, after work, they may be tired. I don't know, but like I know from my perspective, from myself, that our organization doing this today, we have to, for these people who are under occupation, we have to go and no matter what, and show that we are right. with them. And for those who are friends and supporters who aren't from the Ukraine, they can come as well, and they're welcome to be there for you, right? Yes, please. Please, yes, we are like we are exciting to see you there. We need your help. We need your support as strong as never before because it's already six months and it's existential question for us, for Ukrainians. That's why we have to be strong all together. Thank you, Olha. I appreciate you finding time today and go back and get that, that, get that event organized. And we'll be there. Thanks a lot. Thank Thanks. you, guys. See you Thanks. there. Thank you. You too. George Afflegan for Jill today. Uh, you know, before the break, we were talking about Ukraine. We were heard about a, an event, uh, a rally that's happening at City Hall at 5 o'clock. So if you want to attend that, if you're in Vancouver or around, go there and support Ukraine. You know, a person who's experienced the madness of the war in Ukraine is Milos Pospisil. That's a tough name, Milos. Uh, he has personally volunteered and traveled from the comfort of his home here in BC in the, to the borders of Ukraine to assist uh, with the millions fleeing the Russian invasion. He joins us now. Hey, Milos. Hi, George. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, great to have you back. Look, you know, you were, you, we spoke a few months ago uh, and after your first visit. They remind the listeners uh, about, you know, that experience and then you give us an update on your latest uh, travels there. Sure, sure. So, yeah, the last trip was about two weeks after the invasion started. Um, and so I flew out there. Uh, and basically headed towards the Polish-Ukrainian border um, and was planning on acting as a um, uh, evacuation driver for the refugees that were fleeing the war that had just started at that mm-hmm. time. So you'll remember I didn't actually get into the country with right. the rental car, unfortunately, but I was able to evacuate uh, about seven or eight families uh, to different places throughout Europe and was able to um, help out at the uh, uh, refugee center um, on the on the border there quite a bit. So that was a very rewarding trip, but difficult, um, um, you know, difficult to uh, hear what I heard and and uh, but uh, did my best to make a difference at that time. Yeah, and I, then I, I've been 
I remember yeah. when you were saying that uh, when we spoke, and one of the interesting points you made was the challenge you had in that you were identif- you know, that they were concerned about identity and who you were, and who, and, and the fact that there was uh, yeah. some scary stuff going on regarding uh, people being taken. That's right. That's right. One of the biggest uh, sort of shocks was uh, the the realities of um, human trafficking that mm-hmm. were taking place at the time in quite a quite a uncontrolled fashion out there mm-hmm. and um so yeah it it became a bigger and bigger problem to the point where i i learned that you know, you know private individuals were weren't really allowed to do that anymore mm-hmm. at a certain point so but yeah i was able to uh make a difference while i was there mm-hmm. by establishing trust with some of those families and just you know getting them to where they needed to get now you've been back since so tell us about that latest trip yeah, so so I was there in late June, early July. So I'd been looking for a, a meaningful, uh, re, you know, way to go back. Mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't done. Um, I'm really going through this entire uh, war in a very visceral way. So mm-hmm. I, I needed to find a way to go back, and I knew I needed to go into the country this time. So I teamed up with a local doctor, uh, Dr. Paul Dillon. Um, who introduced me to a Canadian living in Kiev who uh, is an ex-reservist. Uh, his name is Kevin Leach. Mm-hmm. And um, the three of us basically got together. And Kevin has an organization, founded an organization called Project Volia, which means uh, Project Freedom uh, in Ukrainian. And his main mission is to deliver medical supplies uh, to, uh, to the front line, to, to Ukraine's defenders. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I reached out to him and I said, you know what, L- let's do this together. And so I opened up my own GoFundMe. Um, I tried to raise uh, uh, around 20000 but only hit about half that amount. But it was enough to order a large amount of really high-quality tactical medical supplies. Um, and I also uh, received an anonymous donation of a substantial amount of pediatric cardiac surgical equipment. Hmm. So yeah, I was really, really uh, wow. happy about that. But I ended up with like five large suitcases of all this medical supplies, plus a drone, which is really badly needed out there as yeah. well by the, uh, you know, by yeah. the, by the, and I, I, I flew out there on my, on my own with these five bags. It was, it was, it was difficult. I won't okay. lie to you, to, you know, to, to lug this stuff all the way there, but I, I flew into Warsaw and I got on a train. It took me 20 hours by train to get to Kiev. Um, and once I got there, uh, basically, I did uh, a few key things. The first thing I did was deliver that the pediatric equipment to one of the largest children's hospitals in Eastern Europe wow. there in Kiev called Akhmadit uh, Children's Hospital. And that was tremendous. And I got to spend a few hours with uh, the children that had been um, wounded as a result of the war. Mm-hmm. And I had actually brought with me gifts toys and things for the kids so so that was extremely rewarding um you know and then i was plugged into a network of doctors out there through uh through through dr dylan um you know through a football a global football association that they all played together in um they greeted me and just gave me the the, just vip treatment the whole time you know and they connected me with um, a medical uh, uh, squad that was based in Kharkiv on the front lines. So in the end, uh, Kevin and I ended up taking about $15,000 worth of tactical medical supplies 
all the way. We basically took a train, an overnight train from Kiev to Kharkiv and wow. uh, met, met with these uh, medics basically in the Ukrainian army and handed everything over. And um, that was the most intense part of the trip because the Russians were only about 10, 15 kilometers away. Wow, and the, yeah. yeah, that was that was that was a bit <laughs> stressful. I'll be honest with you. you know, the, the city was being shelled while I was there. Wow. You know, I mean, it, it was my first time in an active war zone. So it was pretty intense. Wow. Milos, we've got to get going. But I have one quick question, because I mean, I think the difference with you being there six months ago to being there more recently uh, real quick, and I don't want to rush you, but, you know, hope. No, is yeah. there, you know, do you see a big difference? And we had our guest, guest on before, and there's definitely this this pride in this, you know, are you hopeful that things will resolve? And if anybody wants to find, you know, follow Milos on Twitter if you're on Twitter because his stuff is really sometimes provocative, but uh, <laughs> it's worth a follow. But, you know, real quick, you know, you know just a few seconds, are you hopeful? I, I am. I am. I'm hopeful because I, I see their resilience um, mm-hmm. I see their defiance. Um, I saw their courage firsthand. Um, I I know they're going to succeed. The question is, how long is it going to take, and how many more are going to have yeah. to die? And I I, I just want to say that you know they need more from all of us. They need they need they need more, especially more heavy weaponry um, in order because in order you know they need to bring this. In order to bring this to an end, we need to give them what they need right. to, to win, right? And and so, yeah. Thanks, yeah, Milos. I am, I am hopeful. That's great. Yeah, thank you, I George. appreciate you thank joining, you. and we'll probably talk to you again. And let keep. I'll, I'll be following you on Twitter, so I appreciate your time, the time today. Yes, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. George Affleck in for Jill. And before the break, we heard the clips from uh, the press conference held at the City Hall from the, with the mayor and BC Housing. Uh, the fire department, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the downtown east side and the decampment that is being attempted. Uh, some people say going too slow. The city is saying, yes, there's a reason for that. Uh, it's going, we're going to take our time and be cautious. Uh, uh, I know in particular that they are trying to make sure that they do it compassionately. But are they? Joining me now is Sarah Blythe, advocate for the downtown east side and executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society. Hey, Sarah. Hey, George, how are you? Good, thanks for joining me. Look, what's, you know, you had a chance, I'm not sure, because I know you're always running around having been with you down yeah. there. Uh, yeah. Did you get a chance to kind of get any uh, sense of what that press conference was about and what you think about it? Honestly, uh, I didn't even watch it, because to be honest, until we see some movement, uh, until I see people getting into housing and hear some real like movement on people getting housing, mm-hmm. it's just, I just don't even know what to say about anything anymore well i think that was their their kind of point yeah i know they were saying they're it's going to go slower because they want to be compassionate do you think they're going Mm -hmm. at the right speed uh or they should they you know what do you think i think that we have to be compassionate Mm -hmm. because you know every time i've seen them move people they go a block away they go into an alley Mm -hmm. or somewhere and hide and they're really at risk of overdose you mean you mean Uh, the people that are trying to be moved Right. Yeah, people that are being moved right. into places with no services or alone, and and uh, you know, there's other things at play. But I really, we need to get people into housing, and I don't even think it's the worst thing that people have to see it because if you don't see things and they're in in a park, then you know, it's people are levels of government are not going to see it to deal with it. I mean, you can hear the ambulances mm-hmm. in the background, likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's it's chaos down here. But people do need to see it and understand it in order to to actually do something about it, I think. 
Besides the alter, altercation that we saw at, on the first day of this process with the police, which was kind of unrelated to a certain degree, but the tensions were high, obviously, in the neighbourhood. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's mostly engineering staff doing the work. It's not the police. It's not the fire department. It's mostly engineering staff who are down there. How are they doing from your point of view as far as if they're say they're being – the mayor is saying they're being compassionate. Uh, are you seeing yeah. that? Yeah, I'm seeing that. I'm okay. seeing that, um, you know, there's community workers, Van Du, mm-hmm. the Overdose Prevention Society uh, workers um, are out there and they're working with the city to come up with solutions for any fire hazards, clutter related issues, making sure there's a clear path, um, that there's no emergencies. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, obviously, there, we've got to deal with this in a compassionate way because a lot of people are in a in a, a yeah. pretty difficult situation, just even with the heat. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. We add that into the mix. Look, you were. I, I hate to bring this up, but I have to because you All were part right. of yeah, the you, you were part of the Vision Vancouver and part of the campaign yep. that uh, the mayor promised to solve homelessness. Obviously. Yep. Big goal, impossible dream, um, and you know it's it's not a, there's no magic wand that's going to solve this, yeah. and you you know how frustrating it is because you've been there as a politician. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you could, what, I think what, it's what, always what? good to. I mean, honestly, I think it's always good. I mean, I'm not as idealistic as I used to be for sure. <laughs> okay. But you know, I also think that I I I always, you know it's great to see politicians prioritize issues in mm-hmm. that way. Um, if, you know, at least they're going to show that they're going to try and that it's a priority for them. I mean, there's no way to be so idealistic about the situation anymore mm-hmm. uh, because it's just, you know, I think with COVID and everything, there's more people that are homeless and jobless and without hope than ever. And I think, you know, you're seeing that across the states and even different parts of the world where it's really affected people in a lot of different ways. Um, and, you know, it's become there's a lot of issues that we're facing that we weren't facing before. Yeah, it's definitely gotten worse. And no. Vancouver seems to be the magnet, I think, to a certain degree. And it's part of it, they, you know, people say, oh, it's because of all the services down there. And you gave me a tour of, uh, you know, the neighborhood of, a couple of months ago, and we went into this areas behind all these tents, which I was surprised at uh, all the facilities, uh, these empty retail spaces that have been converted into basically everything you need is there. Um, do you think, and, and while it's 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 you know it's amazing, it's also do you think though that is draw is drawing in people to put those tents in front of those spaces, and has resulted in part of the problem we have. No, I I, I mean you know there's so many different problems, um, and you know it's hard to know. Um, you know wh- why exactly? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, so. COVID, I think, and a lot of other things have caused such an enormous uh, housing issue, um, along with all of the other issues that already existed. But having services for people is really important, mm-hmm. especially with the overdose crisis. I mean, yeah. there is uh, so many people dying, mm-hmm. more than any war that we've ever been in. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, I mean, we t- I've talked to veterans that are just like, how do you even handle this? There's a, there's many multiple crisis mm-hmm. situations happening yeah. down here that are contributing to people feeling powerless in so many ways. I don't think anyone really can understand it. 
So we're going to go. I appreciate <laughs> you so finding. Hard. Yeah, I know it's brutal. And I appreciate you finding time today. And I know you're always yeah. busy. And I really appreciate what you do down there. Thanks very much for joining yeah, yeah. me. Yeah, see you again. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill. And this morning, a press release went out uh, representing uh, multiple organizations in the hospitality industry, demanding the province resolve the BCGEU strike as quickly as possible. Still suffering from the pandemic, restaurants and suppliers fear this could be the end for a lot of them. Surprisingly, and I think we all forgot this, uh, is the cannabis industry and the retailers and the distributors. They are suffering too because they their product must go through the same process as the liquor distribution. Joining us now is Jacqueline Pahoda, Executive Director of the Association of Canadian Cannabis Retailers. Hey, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Look, you know, I think we did forget, kind of put this aside. I don't think people really realize at first that you're being impacted. How, how bad is it? What are you seeing? Well, you know, unfortunately, my constituency of retailers, the private licensed retailers that we represent, you know, they have absolutely no alternative. There mm-hmm. is no, you know, option to buy directly from a local you know, producer or what have right. you. So we're in a position where we're about five to seven days away from store closures. Wow due to lack of product. That's, that's, you know, that's even worse than the restaurant industries for them, for what we're hearing. Yeah, I mean, this is existential for my businesses. Um, you know, honestly, this was a sector that was not healthy to begin with. There were a lot, there were a lot of struggles, uh, namely with, you know, competition from the illicit market, the, an unburdened tax structure. There's mm-hmm. a lot of challenges that these cannabis businesses were facing. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, we don't have the uh, the bandwidth to take, you know, a week or a month of closure here. Yeah, just your your business tax, your business license in Vancouver is still like thirty thousand dollars, isn't it? Uh, actually, they did amend that did they? Uh, just this last month. Yeah, oh, okay. to, to five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars. That's still pretty high. That's still pretty high. It's a lot higher than most places. It- it is. There's a, I mean, and again, that's a very good example of a lot of the burdens mm-hmm. that these businesses are bearing. Um, and, you know, they have done this in good faith to, you know, be further the project of legalization for government. Yeah. And now they're facing, you know, the loss of not only their businesses, but, you know, in some cases, you know, their homes, et cetera, because this is their, you know, livelihood we're talking about. Uh, you know, I th- one of the things that I think people are also surprised at is what, oh, this was going to be a cash cow, you know, the money was going to start rolling in for the province and these, these retailers were going to make a millions and millions of dollars, but this hasn't panned out for either the retailers or the province uh, the way they thought. Why is that? Um, The short answer is, you know, an overregulation and, again, an unbalanced tax burden. So, you know, every dollar that you as a consumer are spending on cannabis, you know, about 70 cents of that is being, you know, remitted to government in the form of taxes. And so even with that huge tax burden, we're not, we're still not realizing the potential of this sector. And I mean, that is, you know, this government monopoly and the shutdown that's mm-hmm. accompanying that is a very good example of how we have, we're missing the opportunity that legal cannabis represents, especially for British Columbians. This is our file. You know, this is a profitable endeavor in other jurisdictions. Why is it that we have failed, you know, in Canada to realize this as a uh, what it was supposed to be, which was something that was going to uplift all Canadians? Yeah. How profitable is it in other jurisdictions? Like, give me an example of another jurisdiction that did it differently, probably the way you wanted to do it, uh, and tell me how much money they're making. Well, I mean, if we're looking at, you know, to be fair, you know, there are no other nations that have nationally legalized yeah. cannabis recreationally besides Uruguay. Uh, but if we're looking at American jurisdictions that have a comparable number of people, so say Oregon or Colorado, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll give you an example. In the first year of legalization in Colorado, they actually over-collected 
their projected taxes by $110 million. Wow. So, um, and, and, you know, first year of BC's legalization, we missed our budget target by, I believe it was $92 million. So... Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's a real that's, that's huge. That's huge. And, and, and a lot of it has, I mean, because I look at Vancouver and I was in office in Vancouver as a counselor uh, going through this whole process. And when, you know, we allowed marijuana, there was like 150 of them in Vancouver. Now, how many are there in Vancouver, like cannabis stores? Uh, currently, we have 67. So we have one third as many, yet they can't make money. So clearly it's not because people don't want cannabis, I don't think. They're still shopping, it's just gotten too expensive for them? Or what is the problem? What's the disconnect here between having 150 profitable stores, potentially, and 60 that are struggling? Well, as I said, over-regulation and an unbalanced tax burden. And, I mean, the, the consideration here is that we, when we legalized cannabis as a nation, that was not a greenfield opportunity. We had a very robust existing illicit market that we are now still competing with, especially in British right. Columbia. The that gray, market has not diminished. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, if we're looking at, you know, um, you know, prices that are, you know, comparable potentially to the unregulated market on things like cannabis flour, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. But unfortunately, my retailers, you know, even under normal circumstances, cannot offer, you know, edible products that are similar to what is available in the unregulated market. They have a very, very low dosage and are mm-hmm. quite expensive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the consumer is sophisticated. They make choices based on quality, convenience, and price, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're not able to meaningfully compete in all three of those categories, we're not going to be successful in the project of legalization, which is convincing the consumer that the legal access avenue is the preferable place to buy their cannabis right and i mean in bc we're we're not doing a very good job of securing that for our citizens the gray the gray market is significant in bc i've heard that compared to other provinces we're at what is the percentage of people who are still buying their their cannabis through their you know whatever however they get it that's a, I mean, that's an interesting question. If we look at, um, let's say that we'll take the, the provinces, um, you know, numbers. So they did a poll. Yep. Uh, 75% of British Columbians who use cannabis self-reported using the legal system during the last year. Hmm. So 25% of them are not using the legal system at all. And one assumes that that 75% probably represents you know, some hybrid users. So there are many yeah. people, many British Columbians who are very happy to buy, you know, inexpensive flour from the legal system and then turn around and use a delivery service to have an edible that is, the, you know, a reasonable price and a dosage that they're accepting delivered to their home. Right. Because both mm-hmm. of those things are appealing to the consuming public. So, you know, in this particular instance, especially with this work stoppage, you know what I mean? We're concerned. The concern here is not just the job loss, but rather setting back pushing the it, progress that yeah, we've made. Yeah. yeah. Pushing it back to the back, to, to into the hidden world of the, the gray market. I mean, or, but could you argue the opposite, saying that this is actually drawing attention to the, to the shambles that the distribution system is? Certainly the restaurants and the, and the alcohol, you know, wine and beer, they're saying, look, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having this monopoly controlled by government, why is government in business, in the business of making a profit? Uh, they should be out of this business. This is what this uh, could highlight. Uh, do you agree that that's something that maybe is a positive for you right now? Um, I don't know if it's a positive because unfortunately, like we are facing suffering, like an existential yeah. Yeah. suffering, you know, much more profoundly than anybody else who's being impacted by this strike, unfortunately. Right. Um, but I would say that this does shine a very, very obvious light on the flaw 
in a, in a strict monopoly system, yeah. right? Like if there was any contingency planning or any backup plan in place at all, we would not be facing the supply chain yeah. disruption that we're facing now. Jacqueline, I appreciate you finding time today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.